Hey everyone, it's uh, David Barnett from davidcbarnett.com, the blog site, YouTube channel, iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Spotify podcast, where I talk about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses. Today, I've got Shahara Wright, who joins me from Houston. Shahara, how are you doing today? I'm well. Thank you so much for having me, David. Uh, it's good to see you again. Shahara is a small business attorney based in Houston, and she joined me. She was actually this month's expert guest speaker for the Business Buyer Adventure Group coaching program. And in that call, we spent close to an hour talking about limiting covenants. And, and just, you know, for everyone's benefit, why don't we just talk a little bit about that? Um, you know, we hear a lot about, you know, sort of contracts that forbid you from doing things. And that's kind of the umbrella that covers limiting covenants, isn't it? Yes, pretty much. You know, really, um, when we're talking about covenants, it, it's kind of to stop you um, from from doing those kinds of things. We call it restrictive covenants, which are, you know, kind of just one of those things where, again, it restricts you from doing certain things. Um, and there are various different versions. I mean, there are a bunch of different versions of those, but I think the most popular are populous ones that we talked about, non-disclosures, non-solicitation, um, and non-competes um, are the ones that we talked about. Yeah. And the non-compete one is probably the one that a lot of buyers get concerned about because, you know, they're often afraid that they're going to buy a business and the person who is an expert in that business, the seller, they're worried that that person might go and set up a similar business, you know, in a way that's going to compete with them. What would be some of the things that people should keep in mind when they're thinking about non-compete agreements? Just how enforceable are they? So remember that these are contracts, so they're all governed by state law in the U.S. So not all states are made equal, like states like California don't recognize um, non-compete um, clauses. So there are some states that just don't allow it. Some states allow it if you have, you know, meet certain rules that they're governed by statute. And so you have to have certain language and certain information in there in order to deal with it. So I think that that's really important for people to know and understand as well that it's all governed by state law. So I don't really recommend that people just kind of pull them off the web, um, even if you use a form to go back, check your state, because what they require may be different from one state to another. Yeah. It's, it's, it, you know, do it yourself lawyering, I guess, has a lot of uh, downside to it, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, and I, and I think too, again, you know, it goes to sometimes people think, okay, well, I can just use this form and, you know, I create forms too. And, and I understand, you know, sometimes you just think it's going to be simple, but again, contracts are state specific, um, their enforceability are state specific, especially when it comes to non-competes, because a lot of times it's used in employment, employment situations. So mm -hmm. it's kind of even hard to figure it out in terms of business to business because um, it's a lot, it's employment information. And so um, you don't really know how to do, go about doing with something. So it's very important to understand um, that you have to change it based on what's actually happening in your state. You know, it's, it's the non-competition worry that buyers sometimes have. I often say it's one of the, one of the reasons why something like a seller financing note is really important because if the seller of the business actually has an interest in your continued success as a buyer, it means that they have an incentive not to go and do things that might impact your ability to succeed in business because, you know, they're endangering their ability to collect on that note. 
That's true. That's true. And so um, that's, that's really important. I think, you know, having the buyer and seller kind of come together about what's going on, especially why the seller is is leaving out, you know, are they just kind of cashing in on their interest so they can have money to go do something else that they like? Or, you know, are they still wanting to do this, but kind of rebuilding it um, in a different sense? I think a lot of those things matter in terms of whether or not you need a non-compete, you know, in the first place and how you would enforce it, you know, in, in, in the different scenarios. Yeah. Understanding their motivation. Yeah. It's, it's important. For sure. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, you know, one of the, um, one of the things that, that has been coming up more and more, and I, and I wanted to get you on to discuss this because, because of your background and because you work largely in the area of, of small businesses and the contracts that they have is that with the COVID crisis, we're seeing a lot of instances where two parties to a contract and the biggest example has got to be a lease, right? Between a landlord and a tenant two parties to a contract, both come to the uh, realization that they need to do something in violation of that contract to help the other party out for, to further both of their interests. So, you know, a landlord, they don't want to see all their tenants go bankrupt because that would mean they would be left with an empty facility that they would have to go and try and find new tenants. And of course, if the, if the, you know, tenants don't have the money to pay the rent or if they need the money to be sure that they have the money to start up and pay payroll when they get going again, <clears throat> they obviously have an interest in hanging on to their cash. So I wanted to talk with you a little bit about when two parties to a contract talk to each other and come to an agreement that they're going to not follow the rules that they've agreed to. Maybe we could talk initially about how one would broach the subject. What have you been seeing or hearing in your practice as far as people raising the topic with suppliers or landlords and other parties about, you know, getting out from under the rules they've already agreed to. So uh, the basic term is just a modification of a contract. And usually most written contracts will have some way to modify. And of course it'll say that it needs to be in writing. So first of all, any modification um, in the terms you want to make sure that you have in writing. Um, and some of them are specific, specific in saying that they have to be signed by both parties. So if you have email communication, they may not be allowed. Mm -hmm. um, so you got to see how the contract allows you to modify, how the original contract allows you to modify um, that contract and do it in accordance with that. What I've been seeing in terms of my clients is that a couple of things that I just tell my clients, hey, just go approach your landlord, see what your landlord says, um, and let's start there. Some landlords have been, you know, yes, of course, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll try to make this work because we understand it's affecting everybody. Some landlords, you know, kind of push back and then we'll send a more formal letter stating that, hey, you know, this is the situation. This is affected by a mandatory shutdown. These are the things that are happening. And so, you know, maybe sometimes they'll kind of come back. In getting that agreement, um, what it is really, it just depends on the landlord. All of them at least as far as I've been experiencing, have allowed some type of forbearance. They're not forgiving the rent, um, but they are allowing forbearance in terms of, you know, okay, we'll give you three months to, to get it paid or three months to catch up, and then you've got to start over. So um, and those have been really what we've seen um, in terms of being able to, you know, allow um, our clients to, you know, pause, so to speak, on the rent. Uh, and then I, what I've been telling my clients is, okay, 
you pause, um, is not forgiving. So then when you're getting your loans, you know, um, here in the US, we've got the PPP and we got idle loans and a couple of other loans that are out there. You need to make sure that you, you know, reserve some of this money to ensure that you can pay for your lease when it comes back due um, to go ahead and catch up with those things. Okay. So now I'm speaking to you, we're recording this in the first week of June. So since the pandemic hit in North America, we've had April, May, and now June rents. It's questionable whether some landlords have collected all three of those or not. Right. Have, have you had any instance or example of someone who made an arrangement and then had to go back now for another arrangement uh, because, they, because they haven't been able to open? So we haven't had to do a second arrangement. Some of my clients have just realized they're just not going to be able to reopen. I mean, at the end of the day, they just, there's just no way Um, because they were closed and it really started in March, truly, um, you know, for, for a lot, the mandatory shutdown didn't probably start till mid March, but people were feeling the effects in March. So in early March. Um, So um, because of cancellations and things like that, people kind of stopped coming out on their own and before the mandatory um, shutdown started. So you have March, April, May, and now, you know, you're in the beginning of June. And some people, you know, they may be back open, but they are not able to generate the income that they were, you know, once able to do. Um, so then obviously having to have the conversation about whether they can stay open, whether they need to file bankruptcy. These are conversations that we're having right now. Wow. What, what an awful, you know, place to arrive at for someone who's in business who, you know, set off with a bunch of hopes and dreams about, you know, what they were going to be able to accomplish. Do you think that for a lot of these people, uh, an actual bankruptcy is going to be necessary? Do you think that the landlords are going to realize that there's just nothing there to pursue? Or do you think people will actually follow through with those kinds of things? Well, I think in terms of bankruptcy, it's just way more than just a landlord because you probably have other debts, other obligations um, that you, you know, are going to have to deal with. Um, And also to that extent for legal reasons um, in terms of the business in order to dissolve and shut down um, and, you know, especially in Texas, and I think all states are like this, um, that you have to say that you don't have any debts or obligations that are outstanding. So there's no potential lawsuits and things like that. So the bankruptcy will help with that, where Mm. to ensure that, you know, any and everything is cut off, Um, you know, having to sell off assets, all those kinds of things kind of take to get taken away from you in terms of the trustee dealing with that. So in some ways, it's very helpful um, to go ahead and file the bankruptcy because it makes sure that everything is cleared out. You don't have anything pending. You're not, you know, looking for anything else. So those things are, you know, are real or happening. Um, and I think just to sometimes that having debt that continues, but no income that continues, um, it gets to a point to where there's just no way that you can, no matter how much time you have, you're not going to really be able to catch up. Um, and it's just not possible. Um, and I think that's just the reality of, you know, of economics, right? I mean, it's just, this is the kind of thing it is and that it just doesn't make sense to try and, and salvage something that at the end of the day is just going to cost you way more um, than to cut your losses and move I, on. I've often heard it as trying to fix an expense problem with debt. Eventually you just end up with a <laughs> debt problem. Yes. Right. Yeah. If, if, if the income is not there, you know, and I mean, we've seen this kind of thing before with natural disasters, you know, if you have a hurricane or a storm or a power outage or whatever, we're talking about a very brief interruption and everyone's trying to get back to normal, but this has been going on 
for months. And I can appreciate why some people would, would just want to really have that clean slate, knowing that they didn't have some kind of lingering liability because they were a director of their, of their business and maybe, you know, state tax return wasn't for, filed or something like that, just to have everything cleaned away uh, for a fresh start. What, do you think this is going to, I mean, your clientele are small business people. Are you seeing this from a lot of people or is it just beginning, do you think? Um, it's not a lot of people. I mean, it, for my clientele, most of them don't have retail space. Um, most, okay. you know, if they do, they have warehouses. Um, so a lot of my clients are online digital um, clients or they have um, their, 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 their have services where they don't have to necessarily be in an office and, and have that kind of thing. So a lot of my clients are like that. So in that sense, they're lucky that they don't have like this, a whole lot of overhead. Um, however, um, it still affects them in the sense that, you know, they're trying to continue, of course, to get their business off the ground. They're not making as much money. So then there's still some expenses um, while it's not rent or, you know, something like that is still affecting them. So we, I don't see it a lot. It's not happening a lot, at least in, from what I'm experiencing, but it is mm -hmm. happening. Um, what I am seeing, you know, is just kind of being able to restructure some of that debt, restructure some of those things, restructure how they're doing business. I think really what I've been working more with my clients, especially because they're having to go remote now is really what to do in terms of the remote, um, handling their business remotely, talking about privacy issues, mm. talking about, you know, data security, those kinds of things that kind of changing their business model that we're having to look at that probably they didn't have to deal with before, or at least not as much. No, it's a great point. I mean, at one point I had a career with a bank where I was based from a home-based office because I was kind of in the field, so to speak. Um, and I had a, a quite a lengthy agreement with the bank with a whole set of rules and standards and things that I had to maintain at the house, like separate work area with a door that locked and, you know, had to have a file cabinet that locked and, you know, just all these sorts of things because I had, you know, while I didn't have, you know, account numbers or credit card numbers in my files, I had all kinds of other personal information that, you know, an identity theft would, thief would probably love to have, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I had to control all that information. And for businesses that have always been running from an office, you know, really at the drop of a hat, all of a sudden everyone went home, didn't they? Mm -hmm. And so a lot of this stuff wasn't taken care of. So, so I, I think that's very interesting. Um, and so, right, it kind of open up, opens up a whole new thing. Do you, do you think that some of these people that you're talking with, now that they've experienced a home-based workforce, do you think that they're going to be leaving it that way? Do, do they see the advantages of this? Um, some of them may probably allow for it to happen, but I don't know that they're going to go completely remote and stay and get rid of their, their office space. Um, and that's mostly because of clientele. Um, and they have to have somewhere to meet and talk to clients and things like that. But I think um, for most of them, you know, allowing the flexibility um, and now that they have the ability to do it and put it in place that they can allow for people to work from home in a way that they probably wouldn't have allowed it before. Yeah. I, I, I personally feel that a lot of these offices are going to move to a system where they allow people to spend, you know, two or three days of the week, maybe from mm -hmm. home coming into the office for meetings. And I think it's eventually going to lead to a much better lifestyle for a lot of people. You know, if you take the commuting away for, yes. for part of the week. Uh, so to get back to our topic though, you know, if you're going to come to an agreement with another party and 
you're going to modify that agreement, we need to actually go and read the agreement. To your point, it might actually say in there that there needs to be a written amendment that is signed by both parties, you know, referring to that agreement, saying what you're agreeing to now. Um, and so somebody who, who is going to do that, you need to go, you need to have access to that contract. You have to read what it says. Do, um, do you think that, you know, having that information in hand and insisting upon, let's get this in writing, uh, really helps your position if you're going to be opening up that kind of conversation, shows that you're knowledgeable and you know what you're doing? Um, you know, I think it depends on the landlord. Obviously, some are more sophisticated than others. You know, if you have landlords that, you know, are commercial landlords that have lots of buildings and, you know, standardized contracts and things like that, they're probably more equipped to handle, um, you know, mm -hmm. a, an informal inquiry and saying, hey, I can't pay my rent. You know, what can we do? And they probably have put in some kind of system in which they can do that. So it probably will be easier in some ways to deal with a more sophisticated landlord um, because they have a process in place that's probably existing already, or at least they know how they're gonna deal with all their tenants. Um, I think with a small landlord who maybe doesn't deal with a lot of different, um, maybe has one building or doesn't have a lot of different tenants, it might be a little bit more difficult because they don't know what they're gonna do themselves. Um, you know, you don't know how their mortgage is affecting mm -hmm. and what they've done. So they may be a little bit more reluctant um, because obviously you not paying rent affects their ability to pay the mortgage if they right. have one. Um, and so it becomes kind of a scarier thing where you have to have more conversation because you're dealing with somebody that doesn't really know how it's going to affect them in the end. Yeah. One of the things that, that I've seen what I've heard from people is that some landlords have actually been preemptive mm -hmm. in going out and saying, look, I know that you're closed and I know that you don't have any income. Um, and what they've been doing is, is saying like, you know, part of what you pay, I have to pass on to others, right. property tax, you know, the landscape contractor, like all this other stuff. And so they're making deals where if the tenant can at least pay that part, you know, that the landlord hands on to other people, then they can work on the other balance of the, of the rent and, you know, push, push it off. Or one case I've heard of is someone actually forgave people's rent for one month in April, just because they realized what was going on. But of course they can't do that forever. There's, right. there's got to be a resumption of this cash flow. Ultimately, you know, if, if these businesses close and these places go dark, it means the value of the building is going to go down and that's going to lead to another whole level in this crisis yes. where if the building's value goes down now, you know, is the mortgage now bigger than the value of the building? And then that's when you get the really big macroeconomic circumstances that are going to have a huge impact potentially. Yeah, I definitely um, foresee this impacting the real estate market, the commercial real estate market very heavily. Um, I think, I don't think that we have yet seen the ramifications of that. Um, we probably won't probably until the end, towards the end of the year, beginning of 2021, where, you know, leases are coming up, people aren't renewing, um, the evictions happen, businesses are closing, the bankruptcies and things like that. So I think you're going to start seeing a lot more commercial real estate things. But I think the spinoff with that, you know, and I was just thinking as you were talking is, you know, kind of working, making that work from home office space, so to speak, where, you know, you have more residential spaces, but that have created places for offices and ways for you to um, to work from home and things like that. Yeah. Uh, Shahara, how can people find you online? Because you handle clients all across the United States, don't you? 
I do. I do. So you can find me online um, at my website, therightlawyer.com. That's T-H-E-W-R-I-G-H-T-L-A-W-Y-E-R.com. So that's therightlawyer.com. You can um, find me on Facebook at The Right Lawyer. Um, so that's my Facebook page, The Right Lawyer. And then, of course, on LinkedIn um, under my name, Shahara Wright, and that's S-H-A-H-A-R-A. W-R-I-G-H-T. And those are the places where you can find me, of course, and, and, and connect with me. Awesome, Shahara. And I'll put the website to your law firm in the show notes down below. Perfect. And uh, it was great to have you. And um, I'm, I'm glad to see that you're doing well and you're safe. Thank you. Thank you again for having me. I enjoy it. All right. Have a great day. All right. You too. Bye-bye.